Well, good morning and greetings from the Saints at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento. It's good to be with you again this morning and glad to gather and worship and to consider God's Word together. And you'll have to forgive me for you not having a sermon text and title on your bulletin. I was back east this week at a missions conference, and so I was my fault in missing the deadline. I assure you the sermon is not Steve Meister for the Bible says we preach not ourselves. But if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, I want to look at verses 1 to 8 with you this morning. And while you're turning there, if I can encourage you and announce, we have two summer seminars we're hosting in Sacramento that I want to make sure you're aware of. As you know, the longer days and extended time we have over the summer are for studying theology. What else would they be for? And we're hosting two summer seminars, one of them coming up this weekend. Dr. Peter Sammons, Associate Professor of Theology of the Master's Seminary, will be with us looking at misunderstood attributes of God. And that'll be Friday night and Saturday. And then August 5th and 6th, Dr. Mike Abendroth will be with us looking at the distinction of law, gospel, and justification in Scripture. Both these seminars are free of charge. You're very welcome. And I'll make sure that we have uh, registration information sent to your pastors this week so they can distribute them as they see fit. But I want to make sure you're aware of that and opportunity to partner and fellowship together even in study. But let's look together this morning at Titus 3. We'll focus on verses 4 to 7 in a moment, but I want to read for us beginning in verse 1. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. It is written, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Join me as we pray for his help as we look at his word together. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that as you have, through your beloved Son, poured out your Spirit upon your church, that he might open the eyes of our heart and unstop deaf ears to hear and behold the glories of your Son. We pray, our Father, you might build your church in assurance and confidence of your eternal love towards us in your Son. And help us to behold the wonder and grandeur of Your grace from Your Word that we might be zealous for doing good in our world until You call us home or return for us. We pray this in the glory of the name of Your Son, Jesus. And in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Abortion was widely common in the first century. The unborn were killed in the Roman Empire for the same reasons they're killed today. But in that time, power was heavily weighted to the father of the home, 
the paterfamilias. And he had absolute authority over every member of his household, including the unborn and even the newborn. Any father in the Roman Empire who had a displeasing infant could leave them exposed and left out to die. But by the end of the second century, the Roman law began to change and statutes restricting abortion were enacted. Because of the witness of Christians, many pagans were confronted by their ungodly conduct, their immorality. They began to refuse abortion. And as Christians argued, it was murder and rescued and adopted exposed infants. The tide in the Roman culture began to change. One historian, Michael Gorman, made this summary. He said, A growing Christian population influenced public and government opinion toward punishing abortion and promoting life. It is difficult to resist the conclusion that Christians contributed to the eventual outlawing of abortion in the third century in Rome. Now, as we know, the same witness and the same contribution of Christians continues to this very day. We might think that we live now in the worst of times, but that's only because we have bad memories and don't know often history. Christians have always been called, as we see here in Titus 3, verse 1, to be ready for every good work in a world enslaved to various passions. And the concern for doing good in a bad world is what encompasses this entire chapter here in Titus 3. It even encloses our paragraph. If you notice in verse 1 and in verse 8, Paul focuses on good works. And it summarizes even the letter at the end of this chapter in verse 14 as Paul says in short, let our people learn to be devoted to good works. And these good works include, as we're reminded in the first two verses of chapter 3, obeying your political leaders as Christian citizens and engaging the public sphere, as Paul says in verse 2, with perfect courtesy to all people. Uh, Literally there, it's showing all humility to all. But how could Christians ever be neighborly in such an immoral society? Where does that come from? And Paul, again, to give the motivation and the foundation for such conduct, returns to the gospel we confess and believe. And verses 4 to 7 is one long, compact sentence in Greek. And Paul summarizes it in verse 8 as a trustworthy saying. Or you might be reading a faithful saying. Now, there are five such faithful sayings in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus here. This is the fifth and final. And each of these faithful sayings, by their composition, were undoubtedly some kind of creed or hymn or chant, maybe even some kind of primitive catechism. It was something that the church had already known, maybe even recited in worship. And Paul here is reminding Christians of what they already confess. And notice it's this in verse 8 that Paul tells his emissary Titus to insist on. I want you to insist on these things, to stress, to emphasize these faithful sayings. In essence, Paul tells Timothy, be sure you emphasize and remind the church of what they confess. Be sure you continue to stress the church's confession. And the reason he gives is simple in verse 8, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
the kind of good works he just talked about in verses 1 and 2. And we could even go back up into chapter 2 and see all the good works Christians are to be devoted to in their home and before their employers. Paul in Titus 2 and 3 really covers every segment of society that Christians live in to be devoted to good. So what we have here in this portion of God's Word is where does doing good come from as Christians? Churches that magnify God's saving grace in Christ disciple Christians who are devoted to good in the world. And these things, Paul says in verse 8, are excellent and profitable for people. And by people, he means people in general. He's saying as Christians live this way, they're a benefit to society. They love their neighbors. They do good to their communities. Well, where does benefit to God's to people come from, to the community of, of society of people comes from? It comes from growing in the knowledge of God's eternal benevolence. It is as the church is focused and stresses the ministry of the gospel of grace that Christians grow to do good in the world and to glorify God in their lives. And what we see here in this portion of God's Word is the Holy Spirit telling us that a a life of good, a life of loving our neighbors is rooted in and depends on our assurance of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the ministry of the Gospel in the church that produces Christians devoted to good in the world. And I want us to consider this passage in verses 3-7 to in just from two angles. I want us to look at verse 3, who we were before Christ, and then verses 4 and 7 emphasize who we are. Who we were and who we are as a foundation for how we live in this world. Let's look first at verse 3, who we were. And to remind everyone here in verse 3 of who we all are by nature, Paul gives a sevenfold description that matches the seven exhortations he just gave in verses 1 and 2. That is, as Christians, we are to live in completely different ways than who we were before Christ, and we're reminded here of who we were at all. Paul places two couplets on either side of a central triad. The first couplet in verse 3, we were foolish and disobedient. That is, both in our mind and in our morals, we rejected the wisdom and Word of God. And then in the concluding couplet of verse 3, hating others, hated by others, and hating one another, we have here Paul describing what we might call a dog-eat-dog world. And we say these kind of phrases like it's natural, but it's anything but. We are so dominated by hatred in society that we take it for granted. We think it's normal. But it's the consequence of our enmity with God. It's a consequence of sin in the fall. But at the very heart of the matter, and at the heart of verse 3, at the center of the triad, is what Paul says is being slaves to various passions and pleasures. To this we have been tempted and led astray. What Paul says here in Titus 3.3, he makes explicit and expands on elsewhere, like Ephesians 2, verses 1-3, to where there it is written, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now we ought to note the parallels there in Ephesians 2. To be dead is to walk in sin. To be dead and walk in sin is to follow the prince of the power of the air, the devil. And that is to live in the passions of our flesh and carry out our own desires. Following Satan and following yourself are the same thing. Because that's what the devil aims to do. The devil in our world has been building a worldview and a world system that encourages us to assume that what we want is most important and it's definitely more important than what any god would tell us how to live. Our world would mostly identify the satanic in horror movies or goblins in red pajamas. But you know, Satan shows up far more in Disney movies and the average theme of the American childhood. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. The answer is within you. Believe yourself. No one knows what's best for you than you. Do what you want. Don't let any grumpy God and some old book restrain your desires or your potential. When you believe any of these things, you say with Satan in the garden, I can be like God. I can know good and evil. And so we are enslaved to our own passions. We are under the tyranny of our own independence. We pass our days, our normal conduct, as Paul says in verse 3, in malice and envy. Malice is hoping evil of others, and envy is wanting their good to belong to you. Because you can't get what you want if others are in the way. So you have to wish evil on them and want any good to belong to you. And Paul here in verse 3 just describes life, doesn't he? Describes the world we see on the front page of the paper and outside our window. The Bible here in verse 3, friend, describes how each one of us is by nature and who we were before we were in Christ. It may seem odd to say that we are enslaved to doing what you want, but it is slavery. Freedom is operating according to design. When a car's axles are on blocks in the yard, it may be free of tires and the road, but is that freedom? If a train is derailed, it may be free of tracks, but is it free? No, those are wreckages. And that is what we are by nature. A wreckage enslaved to our own independence. Because we were created in the image of God to enjoy and glorify Him. The reason we have passions, the reason we sense and seek pleasure, is to find our passion and pleasure in God. And what we refused in sin is that very thing. And since then, humanity has all lived enslaved, doing what we want. And it has led to the wreckage of society that we see all around us. All the folly and hatred and malice we know too well is rooted right here in our own natures, enslaved to our own passions. Now, why do we have here from Paul in Scripture such brute honesty about who we were if we're Christians? Above all, Paul wants to remind us that we might never forget 
who we were by nature outside of Christ. Notice very clearly in verse 3 that Paul even emphasizes that includes him and Titus. Notice he says, we ourselves. Paul includes himself in the same condition by nature as everyone else. One writer put it this way. He said, the church must never forget it once harbored the same thoughts about Jesus as his enemies. And that is so critical. The the degree and the extent may vary. The manifestation in our life of particular sins certainly varies. But what we all have in common is right here in verse 3. This is the biography of every single one of us. By nature, who we were. And so we are called here to engage society, to live in the world, never forgetting where we came from and who we were. It's called whataboutism today. It's a common response. One guy on one side of some debate or divide, political, social, or whatever, will make an accusation about the other side. And then the guy on the other side responds by saying, well, what about this or that on your side? Because we, by default, measure our righteousness in comparing ourselves to others. But Christians are called to engage society with this question. What about me? Because this is who I was. And what made us differ from anyone if we differ by the grace of God is just that. God's grace. And so the Christian is not to join the world in self-righteous posturing, but he's to look at verse 4, but God. And that's where Paul goes next. From who we were to who we are. And in verses 4-7, to Paul unfolds who we are in a single long sentence where we have really one of the most compact and substantive summaries of salvation by grace in all the Bible. But at the very center of this long sentence is the simple three words in verse 5, He saved us. And that right there is the main idea of the whole thing. The main idea of verses 4-7 to are those three words. He saved us. We, verse 3, were as wicked and foolish and obstinate and enslaved to our passions as anyone else, but God saved us. God has done it. And that's the emphasis in this sentence. Notice as you scan over it, the emphasis is on God's initiative. God's work. By His own mercy, verse 5. By the Spirit, verse 6, that He poured out in verse 7. By His grace. Paul describes here in this sentence who we now are because of God. And this wonderful summary describing God's intervention and His eternal loving kindness in the Lord Jesus. And it is this knowledge that is the basis of how Christians live in their homes, in their communities, and in their world. And what Paul unwinds here essentially are six reminders of who we are in Christ. And I want to walk through each of these with you and how one enforces the other that we might understand who we are in this world and how we live. There are six reminders of who we are by God's sovereign initiative. And the first and the most basic is that we are the people of the triune God. 
We are the people of the triune God. What is the public statement that Christians make when they become Christians and profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's baptism. Baptism is something like a wedding. It's a public statement and formalizing of what God has done in His sovereign grace. And in baptism, we are baptized into a name. It is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. To be called by God's name in the Bible is to be His. It's to be His people. And we enter His community. And it is by the name of the Father and Son and Spirit that we confess the one God is triune and that we are His people. And our Trinitarian grammar, our theology, is not some esoteric theological algebra that is only for the super smart particular guys. This is the foundation of how we understand God's saving work, who He is. All that God has done reflects who God is. We notice in verse 4, it is God who has saved us. And both God the Father and the Lord Jesus are called in verses 4 and 6, our Savior. Because salvation is the work of one God. Because there's only one God. Yet our God in one essence subsists in three persons. And so we see in verse 5 the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit whom, verse 6, has been poured out on us through the Son, Jesus Christ. What we see here in this passage is that God saves as each person of God appropriates the work proper to their eternal relation in the Godhead. We see the Spirit who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son unites us to the Son who is eternally begotten of the Father. And we have here what Christians have confessed for centuries, the real distinction in the one God that brings salvation and eternal love to us without any division or any separation in the one God, the Father, Son, and Spirit subsist in the single divine being and inseparably work the work of God to save us. And it is passages like this here in Titus 3 that led Christians to confess and defend our worship of one God in three, our triune God. And as we confess in our second London Confession, chapter 2, paragraph 3, this is the foundation of all our comfort and communion with God. We are people of the only triune God. Beneath that, we are secondly subjects of our King. We are subjects of a King. And while it may not be explicit at first glance, what we have in verses 5-6 to is royal language. Notice that the Spirit is poured out on us Now that comes right out of Acts 2. Whereas Peter preached in Acts 2, verse 33, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then Peter goes on there in Acts 2 to describe the Lord Jesus as the Son of David reigning as the eternal King. His ascension to the right hand of the Father was His enthronement. His royal exaltation. And like any benevolent ruler, the Lord Jesus comes with verse 4, the loving kindness of God. 
That term loving kindness is a rare term in the New Testament, but it was common in the first century. It referred to the benevolence of a sovereign or a Caesar or a king. It described rulers who gave benefits to their subjects. And so here we have portrayed the Lord Jesus Christ as the great sovereign, the great king. And He is exalted and enthroned, and the benefit He pours out upon His subjects is the mercy and grace and power of His spirits. And this is a striking picture for Christians who have just been told in verse 1 to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now we might hear that commandment and think, but (laughs) do you know my rulers and authority? And in this time, this was Nero that Paul was writing about. We might grumble. We have these pagan rulers. Do you want to submit to them? But what God says is look to your king. Not the one in Rome, or much less in Sacramento. The one exalted on high. You are to act as citizens of Christ's kingdom. You are His subjects. Your citizenship is not of this world. You live under the reign of the exalted King as His subjects. That's our second identity marker of who we are. But thirdly, we are people of the triune God and subjects of the ascended King because we are beloved. Look at verse 4. We are beloved. One of the most important adversative clauses in the Bible. But God. Quite unlike hateful men described in verse 3, God appears in goodness. And beloved, it is important to remember that the genesis of salvation is found in the genesis of everything. God. It's found and rooted in Him. Specifically in verse 4, His goodness and loving kindness. His benevolence. Salvation is an outworking of who God is. It is not a consequence of what we've done. This is why our grasp of God's eternal and immense being is so vital. That's why we study attributes of God like His immutability and eternality because in the being of God, we find the foundation of our assurance in Christ. And just as He can never change, so our hope for salvation can never fade and never go away. Salvation and grace appear because God is... And God is good, and God is loving eternally, and eternally so toward His people. God is the fount of all love and is love. And in the incomprehensible wonder of our eternal God, His eternal love is the source of our salvation. Now, eternal is not endless time. Eternal is no time. What happened in the moment before creation is a trick question. There were no moments before creation. Because time is a creature of the great Creator. This is why salvation always leads to worship and exaltation of God. And dear Christian, this is why you can be assured of God's saving promises and mercy towards you in Christ. Because the only unchangeable source of all things, God, is responsible for it. Or as Gerhardus Voss remarked, a biblical theologian of last century, he said this, the best proof that God will never cease to love us 
lies in the fact that he never began. Now you could think about that for a week. When did God begin to love you, dear Christian? There was no beginning. It's eternal love. And from the fount of eternal love, verse 4, God our Savior appeared. Now that's where we get the Greek term behind translated appeared here is where we get our English word epiphany. The coming of Christ. The appearing of the Lord Jesus. The visible appearing of God's love and grace in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how, verse 5, He saved us. We worship our great God as His beloved. And how is it that we are called to live for good? Submitting to our rulers and authorities. Loving our neighbors and our community. How are we to live ready for good works in such a bad world? Well, because we're beloved of the God who makes His sun shine on the just and the unjust alike, who sends His rain to a wicked world, we're called to reflect Him because we are His beloved. And we are His beloved fourthly as we were helpless. We are people of the triune God, subjects of the ascended King, beloved of God who were helpless. Before Paul gives further explanation of our salvation, he gives an emphatic clarification in verse 5 of what it isn't. Of what we don't give credit for to us. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Strongly and emphatically, the Bible makes clear, Christian, your salvation is not a response to what you've done. Ever. You never look to the ground or foundation of your standing in Christ with something that you have done or that has earned God's favor. Now, Paul, again, is not denigrating doing good. That's what this whole chapter is about. Good works. Doing good acts. Being, we might say, moral and ethical. And doing good in our employment, our vocation, our communities. But we never look at any good work as the cause or reason or the motivation of our salvation. We can never rely upon it. We remember what Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 2.16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Not even our faith is a work that merits salvation. Faith is an instrument or means by which God gives His free, undeserved gift. And as the picture here of verse 3 so painfully makes clear, we were helpless and hopeless. And if that's a true description of everyone, and it is, then no one can be justified by their works. Because we do not have any real righteousness to perform. And so as we look upon our society and its folly, and its disregard, and its dysfunction, we are looking at a sea of helpless souls. We are looking at a society headed to destruction, daily giving evidence they deserve it, and having no hope in themselves. Helpless. And it's that truth of human sin that makes the Gospel necessary that transforms our view of others from animosity to pity. To those who are pitiable for their headlong rush to destruction. Helpless. 
We were beloved as we were helpless. And that brings us, fifthly, to one of the central statements at the end of verse 5. We are reborn. If we were so helpless, what needed to happen? Rebirth. We are reborn. So Paul clarifies in verse 5, salvation is not a response to our works, but, verse 5, it is a rebirth according to God's own mercy. To God's pity and love upon the helpless. It is a fundamental for us to remember that God did not send His Son to make the Father love us. The Son was sent because He did. Because He was eternally disposed to love His people. It is the proof or outworking of His mercy. And God's mercy met our helpless situation and personal experience by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now Paul here at the end of verse 5 uses two phrases to describe the same thing. The new spiritual life given to Christians in the Holy Spirit. Opening our blind eyes to Jesus. Because what do the spiritually dead and the spiritually enslaved need? They need new life. They need to have their eyes opened. And in the past, as we even survey and think about their God's redemptive acts in the Old Testament, new life and redemption came to His people often through water. God rescued Noah and his family from the flood. God solidified the rescue and liberation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. He brought Israel into the promised land of Canaan through the Jordan River. Salvation to God out of slavery and bondage regularly came through water. And so God's priests in the Levitical system had ceremonial washings and cleansings as they came to serve and intercede for God's people before God in the temple. And then God took that image when He made the promises of the new covenant as what He would do in Christ. One example is Ezekiel 36, verse 25, where it is written, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you should be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. To be washed is to be cleansed from the dead disposition that we see in verse 3. It's to have spiritual life, not to be walking in blindness, not to be serving false gods, to be cleansed of enmity against the true God, to have new eyes and new life. It's the very thing that's signified and symbolized in baptism and why baptism is water. It's symbolizing the work of God's Spirit of cleansing from deadness and cleansing from idolatry for new life. It's the beginning of a new creation. As Paul says here in verse 5, the washing of regeneration. Now what regeneration means here often gets misconstrued as some emotional, personal experience. But the word for regeneration here or rebirth is only used one other time in the New Testament by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 19. In verse 28, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you that you who have followed Me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne. By regeneration there, the Lord Jesus meant the new heavens and new earth. The remaking of all things. The regeneration of creation. The new creation. 
Regeneration is simply that. It's a new beginning. When all things are made new and restored by the power of God. But Paul here, in verse 5, uses regeneration of individuals, of people. He does the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The logic is quite simple. Creation follows us. We fell and rebelled against God, so creation is cursed. And the reason the world is the way we recognize it is because of our rebellion against God. And so, if we have new life, if we have faith, and if we now return to our true and only God, it is the beginning of creation being renewed. In the beginning, the earth was at without form or void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And by our sin, we were plunged back into darkness and into disorder. But in the victory of Christ, now the Spirit of God is beginning to make all things new as He hovers over the hearts of dead men and women. And the God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we know a new world is coming is because there are new people now. Because we've been reborn. We've been regenerated. We have new life. Our eyes are open to who Jesus really is. And we believe Him and we trust Him. And God's mercy and power of the Spirit, our faith is even a product of His grace. What makes you and I, Christian, differ from society? What makes us different in the world? Why did we decide to believe the Bible when our friends and family don't? Only the mercy of God and the work of His Spirit poured out richly by our ascended King. What do we have that we haven't received? Nothing. We are reborn. And that is how we show all humility to all people. That is how we live in this world. Because we know we have nothing that does not come to us from God's merciful benevolence. We are reborn as we were helpless because we are beloved as subjects of the ascended King and people of God. And that brings us to being, in verses 6 and 7, God's righteous heirs. Righteous heirs. He's already stated in verse 6, the Holy Spirit has been richly poured out on us through our risen Savior. And so we come now to the concurrent benefit of being indwelt by the Spirit of God that is being justified in Christ. Now the verb tense here is everything. Notice clearly that justification is not a consequence of our renewal. We're making a logical, not a chronological distinction. It's not like any Christian could look back in their past and say, okay, uh, at this moment I was reborn and then I was justified a half an hour later. It is all by the sovereign act and mercy of God. But concurrently and simultaneously, when we're reborn by the Spirit, which births faith and union with Christ, we are then justified by His saving work as we are now joined to Jesus so that what is true of Him is true of every Christian who belongs to Him. And to be justified, beloved, is more than just being pardoned 
for our bad acts, for our sins. It is being declared righteous in Christ. We who are guilty and who deserve His judgment are credited with the perfect legal obedience of God the Son in the flesh, the Lord Jesus. We are joined to Him by His Spirit, so His works are now our works. And Jesus lived a perfect, obedient life to lay it down on the cross, suffering the eternal judgment that sinners deserve on our behalf, and He rose again to be our Savior. So through faith, His obedience is reckoned as ours. And our disobedience was borne by Him on the cross in judgment. To be justified means to not be condemned. And what it means also is that the verdict rendered on the final day has been brought back into the present and is now rendered now on us in Christ. If you are united to the Son of God by His Spirit, then you are reckoned with His righteousness. The righteousness of God's beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. And if that is true, if we are as righteous as the Son of God, the God-man, then the end of verse 7, we are now what? His heirs. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is, Christians do not look to the future in fear. We do not look forward fearing the appearing of Christ in His second coming or the final judgment. It's already taken place for us in Him. We anticipate, verse 7, hope. The hope, the certain confidence of eternal life. Not just life that doesn't end, but eternal life, Scripture tells us, is this. Knowing God in the Lord Jesus. To join Him in perfect, blessed, fullness of life forever. And we can have every confidence this is true because we have been reborn by the Spirit, justified in Christ. So all we await is eternity in the kingdom of God's Son. This is why, dear Christian, we can live with humility and patience and even suffering wrong in this world. Because we know this life is not ultimate. This life is not the end. It's passing away. Eternal life is coming. And our life in this world devoted to good works, devoted to service, is motivated by knowing we're really living for the promised life to come. This life is disposable so I can give it away. All of our acts of goodness and kindness and mercy, public spiritedness, are rooted in the fact that I am living for the world to come, world without end. Living for the Lord Jesus Christ as I am a fellow heir by the grace of God of eternal life. What Paul reminds us here in this wonderful sentence is who we are. People of the triune God. Subjects of our ascended King. Beloved of God from before the world began. And even though helpless in ourselves, we have been reborn for a new world and we are now the just heirs of that eternal life. So we can do good. And we can wait for Christ and serve Him in this life.
This is, as Paul says again in verse 8, the things he wants Titus to insist on in the churches in Crete. This is what the church is called to stress. And what we're reminded here in this wonderful passage is the importance of our distinct confession and our mission as a church of Christ. We're reminded first of our confession. It's another reminder that theology, sound doctrine, is not, as the opponents will tell you, lead to cold, arid formalism, being no good in the world because you're too heavenly minded. That bias comes from the critical spirit of liberals. You did not learn that in the Bible. Nobody did. In the Bible, the church is called to insist on these things to insist on justification and regeneration and God's sovereignty and our depravity and sin by nature. So in the gratitude that arises among the children of God of knowing who we were and who we are, we might live with goodness and zeal in this world. We don't ever separate doctrine and duty because you don't separate what God has joined together. And even to this day, when Witt suggested to us that we don't need doctrine, we just need to pray. Well, you can just start asking questions. Pray to who, about what, and for why? Or we don't need doctrine, we just need to be active in the world. Active doing what? For what reason? On what basis? With what motivation? Enduring what hardships? Scripture never calls us as disciples to lead some blind, aimless activism in the Christian life. But our enduring commitment to doing good in this world will only be based on deep theological reflections on God's Word. Deep convictions on what He's revealed to us. And that means, secondly, what we have here is, as a church is our mission clarified. We have a clarification of our mission. In Nearly now 15 years of pastoral ministry, the most upset that professing Christians have ever gotten with me is when I refuse to publicly lead the church in some kind of political agenda or issue. And the assumption is often, pastor, you don't care. Now the truth is, I actually care a lot, and often I agree with the agenda, but where I must differ and defend is the exclusive preserve of the church. Our mission And the only ones on this earth with this mission is to insist on the gospel of Christ according to God's word, to preach it and proclaim it, and to disciple Christians in it. So Christians, so that the fruit of it will be that Christians are devoted to good works in the world, that they're better employees, that they're better citizens, that they're better community neighbors and neighbors and family members and friends. And all of that is the flowering and fruit of the corporate church gathered around the truth of Christ and His Word, centered on the Gospel, hearing the glories of God's Word according to His Word. Do you know why visible Christianity in our culture is so often in disarray and discord? It's because Christians don't know who they are. They're insecure. They're not grounded in confident assurance in the being and grace of God. They're ignorant. They don't know who they are, where they came from, or where they're going by God's promises. And if we want Christians in our generation to be zealous for good, to be bold and unashamed in living for Christ, 
then the church, as the church, must take up our mission to disciple and to teach and to be rigorously stressing these very things by the grace of God so that we live accordingly in the world. It's really because we as churches care about the work and witness of Christians that we must refuse any other agenda or any other mission to supplant the mission of the church in ministering the Gospel and preaching God's Word and insisting on these very things. One of the truths that needed to be recovered in the Reformation was Christian vocation, Christian calling. Because of the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, it was assumed that only sacred work was done by priests and monks and nuns, and other Christians had no other sacred calling. But the Gospel of Jesus turns that whole assumption on its head. The Gospel reminds us that our spiritual works that win us no merit before God because He saved us. But our spiritual works come from our great assurance of knowing who we are in Christ. Knowing who we are by God's grace does not make us indifferent to the world. It actually opens us up to live and serve in it because we have assurance before our Father. In his work, Martin Luther, on the freedom of a Christian, Luther wrote this, Just as our neighbor is in need and lacks we were in need before God and lacked His mercy. And as our Heavenly Father has in Christ freely come to our aid, we also ought to freely help our neighbor. Now adopted into the family of God, we grow more to be like our Father. Or as Luther put it elsewhere succinctly, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And our good works come from knowing we have nothing good to give to God and only to receive. And all we need has been provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ because He has saved us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the confidence and assurance You give us in Your Word to ground us in the unshakable realities of Your grace in the Gospel of Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name that You would find us faithful, zealous, committed to doing good in our world because You have saved us. We want to reflect Your glories to all who are around us. We want to seek to obey You, to do what You tell us according to Your Word, not that we might earn anything before You, but because we have already received everything from You in Your Son. And we pray, our Father, You would only deepen us in the knowledge of Your wonder and Your goodness and Your loving kindness towards us in Your Son and by Your Spirit that we might live for Your glory with zeal until Your Son returns for us and everything is fully and finally regenerated. We praise You, our Father, for the great hope You have given us in Jesus Christ and in His name we pray. Amen.